Welcome, everyone, to this eighth edition of Surety Today. My name is Mike Stover, and I'm a partner in the Surety Law Group here at Wright Constable and Skeed in Baltimore, Maryland. First, I would like to note that um, we're coming to you live from our new office in Baltimore. Our <laughs> address has changed. We've moved about, I don't know, we say like two blocks, two and a half blocks. About two blocks. Yeah, the address is now 7 St. Paul Street. We're on the 18th floor, Baltimore, 21202. The zip code changed by one digit. But we're bigger, better, more modern space with lots of room to expand, so uh, we're happy. We're still digging out of boxes. But I'm joined today, as, as I mentioned, by Mr. Louis J. Kozlikowski, Jr. That's a lot. Lou is a partner here at uh, Wright Constable. He's been practicing for 42 years in construction, commercial, and surety law. He's been uh, an assistant AG. He's for the uh, Maryland Transportation Authority. He's been counsel at the General Accountability Office, the GAO in D.C. He's represented all sides of construction-related disputes, from the government to school boards, GCs, subs, suppliers, you name it. Uh, he's AV rated by Martindale, Martindale Hubble, and he's been a super lawyer for years. He's a former adjunct professor at the Baltimore County Community College teaching contract law for contractors. And, uh, and we're happy to have Lou with us. Say hello, Lou. Good afternoon. Or good morning. <laughs> yeah, it's afternoon now. Yeah, it's afternoon. Surety Today, as everybody knows, is designed to keep the busy claims professional up to date and informed on surety issues. Wherever you are, if you have a phone, you can tune in. And if you miss an edition, uh, you can listen to the recordings on our website, or at podbean.com as a podcast under Surety Today. The program is offered only to in-house claims folks, and uh, we're continuing to grow in popularity. We've issued 169 pins, and we've had 269 people call in since we started the, the program. As always, we appreciate your support, and we ask um, that you pass along to any pass along our contact information to any of your colleagues who might be interested in joining in. And if you have any suggestions for topics or improvements, please let us know. As we go forward today, if you have any technical issues with the call, please call or contact Ms. Jeannie Hyatt at jhyatt, H-Y-A-T-T, at wcslaw.com. We're going to mute the line here during the presentation so that uh, um, we don't get any background interference and just save your questions for the end. We'll have a Q&A at that time. Um, we're also recording the presentation, as I mentioned, so we can post them on the website. So let me mute the line here. Hopefully I don't. Okay. All right, so our uh, topic today is trust funds. And Lou's going to lead us off with a sort of an introduction into the nature and formation of express trusts, and, um, and then we'll, I'll take over a little bit right after that. Go ahead, Lou. I should add, my uh, first introduction to surety law was in about 1978, where I met this cantankerous lawyer, Jerry Sunderland, who worked for a surety, and I had terminated for default his principal on three projects for the state of Maryland. So I got a rather rude awakening to the law of surety uh, uh, law at that point, uh, being a young AG, not knowing exactly what surety was, other than I knew I had the money and he wanted it. So. We'll go, uh, go through the, the trusts, which be a little boring in the beginning because it's going to be talking about trust in general as opposed to the trust fund statutes, but I think we need to have a basis first 
before we get into uh, trust fund statute to just what is a trust and how does they how do they generally work? Um, courts define trust where legal title to property is held by one or more persons under an equitable obligation to convey, apply, or deal with such property for the benefit of others. Uh, there are three primary parties to the ordinary trust. There's the settler, the trustee, and the beneficiaries. Um, the settler is the person who or entity that creates the trust. Uh, generally, that's the party that provides the property to be held in trust. Uh, the trustee is the party who is appointed or required by law to perform the trust and the one in whom the uh, property is vested under either express or implied agreement to exercise those powers for the benefit of others. Uh, the settler and the trustee may be one and the same and often are. Uh, the beneficiary is the person for whom the benefit of the trust is held. Uh, so how's, after the players, how do you form a trust? Well, basically there's shorthand two types of trust generally either express or implied. Uh, express trusts are created by the direct and willful act or conduct of the parties by some writing, deed, or words expressly evidencing the intent to create a trust. Trusts can also arise by statute, such as the construction trust fund statutes, which are in very many states at this point. Implied trusts generally arise by the operation of law and are generally recognized as constructive trust or resulting trusts. And we'll deal with those a little bit later. But just remember there are basically two types of trust, express or implied. Um, trust can either be executive, executed, ED, or executory. An executory trust involves a circumstance where the trust is intended, but the transaction has not been completed and remains imperfect for some reason. Uh, it is a trust that is not fully and finally declared, but requires some other act or acts in order to, to perfect the trust and to carry out the intention of the settler. An executed ED trust is one fully and finally declared by the person created it so that nothing further remains to be done in order to make it effective. So we're going to deal mostly with, at this point, express trust and leaving the implied trust for, for after uh, a bit. An express trust is created when parties affirmatively manifest an intention that certain property is to be held in trust for the benefit of a third party. I mean, typically what you find today where parents create trust for their children, as a good example, uh, it's usually done in a will uh, but it can also be done outside of a will as well. But it's a, you know, a writing that creates a specific trust for a specific beneficiary. Okay, you don't really need technical words. All that is necessary is that there, you show the intent that a legal estate is vested in one person to be held in, in some manner for, or purpose of another. Uh, you don't have to get hung up on the words trust or trustee because that by themselves do not create the trust, but rather the intention of the party creating the trust. The 
part that most people get wrong is is that the essential words is that there must be an unequivocal showing that the intention that the legal estate was vested in one person. I give Black Acres to John Doe as trustee for the benefit of would be sufficient to create a trust using those words. Um, courts determine whether a trust is created by the uh, contract or by the document by ascertaining the words used in the contract or by the terms of that contract, however phrased. That's why it's important to look to see what the intent was, what intent was conveyed in the document itself. Unlike contracts, trusts do not require consideration to be valid and enforceable. If you go back to contracts, you need offer, acceptance, and consideration. That's not required under a trust because here the trust, the settler could create the trust without the beneficiary even knowing about it, without any consideration flowing from the settler to the beneficiary, or without the settler ever gaining the acceptance of the beneficiary. However, just like contracts, the person seeking to establish the existence of a trust bears the burden of proving the creation of a trust. Okay, what are some of the elements of a valid trust? One, you need a declaration. Words, either written or oral, but you need a declaration to manifest an intention of the settler to create a trust. You need a trust ray, R-E-S. Latin, meaning a thing, property. You need something to be given as part of the trust. You need a trustee with active duties. You need to designate the beneficiaries. You need a trust purpose. And in some cases, you need delivery of the trust property. Because one of the parts the court may look at is if the property is never transferred to the trust, then the trust has not become effective. Uh, in the wills and estate side of, of law, sometimes people create a trust in their will, but yet they never convey black acres into a trust such that it becomes trust property. They never fund, the tr or they create a, a fund, a trust fund for, for children, and yet they never deposit money into the account, would be some examples. So the real things that you're looking at is you need a trustee, a beneficiary, and trust property. Some of the things you do need, just like in a contract, is the intent. You need the intent to create a trust. And that's where the courts will look at the words, either, you know, either oral or written, as to what the intent of the settler was in creating the trust. Uh, with regard to property, anything of value will do. It can be real property, it can be personal property, it can be tangible or intangible, um, but it can consist of any type of property. The only difference is sometimes, depending on the nature of the trust, there has to be a physical transfer of the property to the trustee in order to make that trust effective. But regardless of what we're talking about in the way of property, it has to be clearly identified or ascertainable in some fashion. Uh, beneficiaries are in the same category. Uh, you can identify one person. You can identify a group of beneficiaries. Uh, the real key is whether or not that that beneficiary uh, is a identifiable in some fashion and also has the capacity to take and hold property. 
when you're dealing with uh, trust funds for children, you know, they don't take, they're, they're the beneficiary, but the trustee determines how to distribute the funds, and that's usually distributed to a minor for, to a guardian then. So it's to the guardi guardian of the minor children. Uh, one uh, part that we'll twist on a little bit later, which should be mentioned now, is that persons who have only an incidental benefit in some manner to the performance of the trust are not beneficiaries to the trust and cannot enforce the trust unless they were specifically intended to be beneficiaries. There will be a couple of twists on that later on with regard to the construction trust fund statute, but generally someone who's not a named beneficiary can't enforce the, uh, the trust. Okay. On the trustee, um, same thing. Anyone, you know, of legal age can be a trustee. It could be a person, a corporation. Uh, they have to hold the property for um, the others, and they um, are duty-bound under fiduciary duties, which I'm sure most everyone can understand, um, and the only odd part about a trustee is that they don't have to accept to be the trustee. They can refuse in the beginning. They can also refuse later on, and there will be a substitute appointed. And even if there is no trustee identified in the trust, the court will appoint one later. They won't let the trust die merely because someone's forgotten to identify a trustee. Okay. Thanks for that. So... Um, the, real, the question now is, is where do you find trust uh, agreements? Where do you find, uh, where does the surety look for these kinds of, of agreements? Obviously, the general agreement of indemnity is, is one place, um, and typically, you know, those, there are fund, trust fund provisions in most indemnity agreements, but they vary uh, from, from, you know, from surety to surety, so you've got to take a look at those agreements and look at the terms and, and then compare those to what is required in the particular location where you're seeking to enforce the trust to see whether or not you've got a valid trust provision. And for the most part, um, you know, courts have, have upheld and enforced the trust provisions in indemnity agreements in, in a variety of circumstances, in a variety of terms, and, and all of that. But there are cases out there, uh, which we'll talk about some at the end, where they, where they have not upheld the trust fund provision for various reasons. Um, we have a, uh, I have a, a paper that I, that I wrote back in 2009 that I'll send around to everybody after the call uh, that, that goes into a lot more detail on all these issues relating to trust. So that'll be something you can look forward to. It's a pretty long paper. <laughs> I think there's like 300 footnotes. I wrote it for the uh, Surety Claims Institute, so I tried to do a, a good job there. Um, but, you know, typically you'll, you'll find enforcement of the GAI provisions. But if you don't have one there or you've got, you've got some difficulty with enforcing that provision, uh, the next place to look is in the underlying contracts. And, and sometimes you'll find trust fund provisions in the construction contracts themselves. Let's say the surety bonded a subcontractor that, uh, that went into default, was terminated, the surety completed the contract, paid subs and suppliers. So you can look at the, the, the contract between the GC and the owner for trust provisions or between the GC and the, and the bonded principal or between the principal and any sub subcontractors or suppliers, and there might be trust fund provisions in there that the surety might be able to take advantage of 
either through the doctrine of equitable subrogation where you would stand in the shoes of a satisfied uh, claimant uh, under their contract. You could assert their provisions of trust funds um, through assignments. If you pay the claim and got an assignment, you could be able to assert uh, rights in the underlying contract there. Or in some jurisdictions, uh, not in Maryland, but in some jurisdictions, when the bond incorporates an underlying contract, then uh, by, by reference, the terms of the underlying contract are, are treated as being part of the bond, and you can get into the trust provisions that way. So um, that's the second sort of general area to look at. Uh, then a third area to look at is in particular states, whether there's a trust fund statute. And many jurisdictions have some form of construction, of construction trust fund statute legislation, but most do not. Um, there was a survey that was done in 2004 of, of all the states, all 50 states, and I, and I think that uh, the majority did not have any kind of, of construction trust statute, but, but there were many that did. Um, so you just got to look and see if, if that's applicable. But also you've got to pay attention to the trust statutes because they vary uh, widely uh, by jurisdiction as well. Some are limited to private jobs. Some are limited to residential jobs. Some are criminal or penal in nature, and there may not be a right of recovery for the surety there. Some uh, limit the recovery to a specific class that may not include the surety, or some don't apply if a surety bond was issued. So you've got to look at the statute, statutory trust language to see whether you can, um, um, you know, try to take and use the benefit of the trust fund in, in that in that situation. So, Lou, I'll turn it over to you to talk about um, implied trust. Okay. Um, implied trusts fall into two basic categories, constructive and resulting. On the uh, constructive trust really is uh, not actually a trust, but rather a common law remedy developed in equity for unjust enrichment. Uh, you know, the elements of a constructive trust are variously stated, but include obtaining property or retaining property through actual constructive fraud a breach of fiduciary duty, duress, coercion, or mistake or other wrongful conduct causing unjust enrichment of, to the wrongdoer. Okay? So basically that's an equitable remedy that they're trying to fix what was mistake was taken wrongly. Uh, again, the same thing though. The person who's trying to argue constructive trust though has the burden of proof. A resulting trust is also an implied trust, but that's basically one where the express trust for some reason has failed. And therefore, when the court sees that and they see the express trust has failed for some reason, then they will fix it, if you will, and call it still a trust. That's where there may be a legal technical deficiency in the, in the express trust, where an express trust is not fully performed without exhausting the trust estate. Um, or where someone has bought property and they put it in the wrong name uh, of, the, of the wrong person, and they'll fix that as well. Okay. Uh, so we talked about a little bit about the nature of the trust. Now, you know, you find yourself uh, frequently, sureties do, in bankruptcy. So what, what becomes of these trust fund rights in bankruptcy? What, what kind of benefit or, or can the sureties uh, derive from having trust provisions either in the, either in the indemnity agreement or the underlying contract or, or maybe even the statutory trust? 
And so let's take a look at that um, issue in the bankruptcy context. And as Lou discussed, the creation of a trust alters title or ownership of the trust property. Instead of the principal having total and complete ownership over the bonded contract funds, for example, upon creation of a trust, the principal becomes the trustee with only bare legal title. And the beneficiaries of the trust, the surety, sub, suppliers, what have you, they become the equitable owners of the trust. And when a bankruptcy case, when a bankruptcy case is filed, uh, pursuant to the bankruptcy code, an estate is created, and by operation of law, all of the debtor's property, wherever located and by whomever held, automatically becomes what's known as property of the estate. Section 541 of the Bankruptcy Code defines property of the estate very broadly, and, um, and it is construed by the courts very liberally in order to encompass as much property that the debtor has into the bankruptcy estate. 541, Section 541D provides that property in which the debtor has only legal title becomes property of the estate only to the extent of the debtor's legal title, but not to the extent of any equitable interest that the debtor does not hold. So we see that the bankruptcy code has been, has been drafted in a way to protect trust property, to recognize the, and preserve the special nature of trust funds by recognizing the distinction between legal title and equitable title. So in the bankruptcy courts, you'll find that the courts will, uh, will enforce and apply trust fund provisions um, and the way that they'll do that is that the court will look to the federal bankruptcy law as to what constitutes property of the estate, but the court will then look to state law to determine uh, whether the debtors, what is the debtor's interest in property. And so the court will look to state law to determine if a valid trust exists and whether the principal, now the debtor in bankruptcy, holds only legal title. Um, courts, uh, whether a valid trust exists will be evaluated as of the date of the filing of the bankruptcy case, and the party asserting the existence of the trust will bear the burden of establishing its existence. So um, you'll have that burden of proof if you're trying to enforce a trust provision. And most courts, and, and in the paper I'll send you, you'll, you'll see references to this, most courts hold that uh, trust fund provisions in the general indemnity agreement or construction contracts or trust fund statutes um, are uh, valid and upheld and that the trust property is not property of the estate. So um, those, those trust fund provisions can be used by the surety to argue that uh, such funds, the, the trust funds that are being held in the estate, that they should be released, that the automatic stay, which applies when a bankruptcy is filed, should not apply to those funds, um, and that the funds that uh, maybe if, a, if an argument that a preference is being made or a preference payment has been made, the argument can be made in response to that that the funds that were paid were actually trust fund uh, funds and therefore not subject to uh, the preference um, provisions of the bankruptcy code. So the, the, the existence of trust provisions is, can be very beneficial to sureties in the bankruptcy context. Lou? Okay. Uh, the times that I've dealt with similar issues are either with banks, the IRS, and or creditors. Um, with regard to the IRS and creditors, it's usually when they attach your bank account. And of course, you're either the general contractor or the subcontractor and you haven't paid the person below you. 
Well, with regard to the IRS, uh, I've been able to convince them, at least in Maryland, under the Maryland Trust Fund statute, that those are not funds owed to the subcontractor if they're attaching the general contractor's bank account because the subcontractor owes suppliers and sub-subcontractors. And if I'm the subcontractor, same argument except I owe money to suppliers and whatnot, and that seems to have been fairly successful with the IRS, particularly if I'm representing the general contractor when I also send the IRS a copy of our payment bond telling them that if you take the money, uh, I'm going to have to pay under the payment bond and all kinds of things will occur after that, so it's really not the subcontractor's money. The one interesting one is about banks and, of course, factoring counts receivable. Um, in Maryland, there was a case where a bank did exactly that. They swept the account, and the, uh, it, wasn't, it, wasn't it was decided on a motion, but they did say that the um, contractor had a cause of action against the bank for becoming an involuntary trustee. That is, that when someone helps the trustee breach their fiduciary duties in some fashion, that they themselves become an involuntary trustee and must return the trust property. And basically, of course, the bank screened by saying, how can we, the poor bank, know that? And the test was very simple, that the person who helps the trustee breach the trust uh, has to know or should have known of the breach of trust or... You know, by statute or otherwise, uh, he is subjected to the same liabilities because he didn't do his due diligence. In Maryland, it would be quite easy. A bank factors accounts receivable to a contractor. He knows that the, unless he goes out and checks to make sure that that contractor has paid his suppliers or subcontractors or subsubs, then that bank would be under an involuntary uh, trustee position where they could be liable for giving the funds back. Because Maryland has a trust fund statute. Because Maryland has a fu right. trust fund statute. And the case that the Maryland courts relied upon was an out-of-state case, which was in Oklahoma, that did have a trust fund statute. But without that, then the question becomes is, if you don't have a trust fund statute, then the question is, what action should the bank take to find out whether or not the funds are still held in trust for, for some other document? The trust fund statute makes it easy to, to put that onus on the bank but if it's in a contract that the bank has no knowledge of, that gets a little harder for the, to say that the bank should have known about it. Right. Okay. Uh, so, you know, like I said, generally speaking, the trust fund provisions are, are upheld and enforced, but there are a handful of cases out there that, that have it, and, and usually it's for, you know, specific reasons in a case. So let's look at a couple. In-red construction alternative, 2F3rd, 676 Circuit, 1993, involved a dispute in the bankruptcy court between a surety and the IRS to bonded contract funds that were paid to the debtor. The court held that a trust was not created because the indemnity agreement trust provision did not require the principal to keep any portion of the payments as separate trust funds in a separate account. The court, the court uh, believed that under Ohio law, unless such funds were segregated, no trust could exist. Um, in re Suprema Specialties, uh, 370 Bankruptcy 517, the Bankruptcy Court for the Southern District of New York, 2007, the surety issued a bond to secure principal's payments to suppliers, and the surety brought an adversary proceeding the Bankruptcy Court asserting its rights to certain funds ahead of the principal's lenders. The court held that the indemnity agreement failed to uh, identify a specific trust rest because 
It permitted uh, the principal to commingle funds, which prevented identification of the trust, allowing the commingle of funds. Uh, apparently, the court believed was was fatal to an express trust in and of itself. And the court also found that there was no trust because there was no delivery of the trust rest, as Lou was talking about earlier in there. Uh, the trust provision under the court's view was invalid because it sought to impose a trust on fund not yet made, not yet received, or due. Um, a third case is uh, the Acuity a Mutual Insurance Company versus Planners Bank, 362 F Sup 2nd, 885, uh, Western District of Kentucky, 2005. In that case, Surety sued the bank that had seized a progress payment made to its principal uh, from a bonded job, and the court held that the trust cannot exist without a trust corpus and that a promise made in the indemnity agreement four years earlier could not impress a trust on funds received without some later action or evidence of intent. Under Kentucky law, merely identifying a future risk is not enough. The property must have been in existence and identified definite at the time of creation of the trust. So you see how you know, different jurisdictions and the different law and requirements within those jurisdictions can um, can derail your trust fund argument. So you've got to be careful about, you know, what is the particular jurisdiction requiring and then comparing that to your indemnity agreement or your underlying contract to determine whether you've got uh, sufficient um, basis to, to sustain a trust. So, like I said, we'll send out the paper to you um, and, you know, it, it, one, one word of caution there, that paper, as I said, was written in 2009. There's a discussion in there about non-dischargeability and bankruptcy, which has been superseded by a uh, Supreme Court decision in 2013. So that whole discussion in there in, in, in this paper about that topic is, uh, is no longer valid except for historical purposes, I guess. But, so uh, wrapping up here before we go to the Q&A uh, period, I want to let everybody know that the next edition of the Surety Today will be on December 12th at uh, 12.30 Eastern Time, and the topic will be letters of credit. Uh, it will be presented by George Backrack and myself. Uh, quick rundown, upcoming Surety events. November 16th is the uh, Philadelphia Surety Claims Association lunch meeting. November 17th is the Atlanta Surety Claims lunch meeting. December 7th is the Philadelphia Surety Claims Association Holiday Party. I know that uh, the Chicago Surety Claims uh, Group holds a nice holiday party, but I don't have their date. Um, the ABA FSLC registration is open for the midwinter meeting, which is going to be held this year in New Orleans, January 18th through the 20th. Uh, the 20th. Hopefully, uh, we won't be greeted with any blizzards down in New Orleans. <laughs> so let's... Um, Let's see if there's any questions uh, that people want to get answered here. I've got to unmute the lines. Okay, so we're open for any questions and hopefully answers. <laughs> Hi, this is George Reddick over at uh, International Fidelity. Um, hey, George, you how are you doing? Good, yep. how's it going, guys? Good. I. Um, the uh, reference was made early on in the presentation uh, about a um, a list or a chart, which I believe I've had at one point, which I don't recall where I would have it or if I still have it, um, of the uh, survey of the various states and, and their trust fund statutes. Uh, do you, does someone there actually have that handy? Well, I tell you, George, I, in the paper that I'm going to send to everybody, there is a um, discussion of that, and I have... 
uh, reprinted from the article that I got it from um, the 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 tables that have the you know the various statutes that have them and the, and the ones that don't. So oh, that's great. Uh, yeah, if you look on page seven of that of that article that I'll send you, it's got a breakdown right there of what they were. Now this, of course, is uh, as of two thousand four. <laughs> but all right, you know, it's a start. Duly noticed. Okay. Anybody else? All right, great. Thanks, everybody. Appreciate Thank it. You. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you.